It's not working. It's not working. Many of you know that my father was a pastor, and and I'll never forget there was a man, I'm going to call him Mr. Smith. Mr. Smith had come to know the Lord. Uh, He was a recent convert to Christianity. Mr. Smith was a kind of a rough guy. I think he was a mechanic. He, you know, worked with his hands. And we had been praying for Mr. Smith for a while, and he came to know the Lord and was saved, and we were all excited. And I'll, I'll never forget my dad telling me the story of Mr. Smith coming to him and saying, it's not working. And my dad said to him, what do you mean? It looks like you've got life together. It looks like things are going pretty well. And he said, preacher, it's not working. It's not working. You know, I came to know the Lord, and then I was told that what I needed to do was to, to buy this big Bible. You know, real Christians have the big Bible. And not only did he buy the big Bible, but he got his hair cut, and he got a brand new suit and brand new cowboy boots. And the problem he was having is that he was doing all these things, but yet he was still feeling like something was missing. And so dad had to walk him through that being a better Christian had nothing to do with carrying a bigger Bible or by dressing a certain way or by having a certain haircut. Dad had to walk him through what it meant to follow the Lord. And we may not be in the same place as Mr. Smith, but don't we all kind of feel like there's something more? Don't we all kind of struggle with this idea that maybe we're, we're missing something? How many of us read books or, or watch programs or listen to podcasts where we are told that there's more that you can kind of add to your Christian life that will make you a better Christian? You see, I think we're all aware that we have deficiencies. The problem, I think, that we have as Christians is how to fix it. And, and what I want you to notice, and one of the themes, I'm going to give you some little kind of vignettes of some things over the years, but what I want you to see is that these things, having a bigger Bible is not a bad thing. For some of you, it's a lifeline because you can actually read it because the print's bigger. It's, it's not a bad thing. But it becomes a bad thing if it becomes the main thing. The problem becomes, what are we leaning on to make ourselves right? To make ourselves pure in the midst of our Heavenly Father? Jesus was surrounded by people you know, as we've been going through Mark, one of the things we've seen is that Jesus was surrounded by people who wanted to be in the God crowd. We've understood that as we've been going through the book of Mark. And oftentimes, there are these two groups that kind of Mark uses, and over and over we see these two groups, and we're, I think we're supposed to kind of compare and contrast these two groups. And neither one of the groups are getting it right. Kind of where we left off was in chapter 6, and and look at verse 53, and you're going to see, this is a summary statement, but you're going to see one of these groups that we've talked about over and over and over again. Look, this is a common, 
common note here. This is a word of summary, and we see this over, we've seen this over and over in the book of Mark. In verse 53, when they had crossed over, the disciples and Jesus, they came to the land near Gennesaret, and they moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him. This is common. We've seen it over and over. Jesus just swarmed by people and ran about the whole country and they began to carry here and there on their pallets those who were sick to the place they heard he was. And wherever he entered the villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplace and imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched it were being cured. And the amazing thing that we're supposed to see is that this is how powerful this man Jesus is, that just by touching the hem of his cloak, people are cured. But one of the things that we're supposed to also see is that although many people were coming to him and wanted to be in the in crowd, wanted to be in the God crowd when the miracles were taking place, we all know that the minute that things got difficult, the crowd dissipated. And the ones that were left truly following Jesus was a small number. And so they weren't getting it. Something was missing. They weren't truly worshiping Christ. And it's easy to see that what they were worshiping were themselves. And what they were most concerned about was their, their, their own health, their own well-being, and so the minute that the focus was off of them and on to something else, someone else, they were gone. But there's another group. There's another group. And if you've been paying attention, one of the things that you might have seen is this other group that early on in Mark we heard of quite a bit has been missing. It's been since chapter 3 that we've seen the Pharisees and the scribes. And the last time that we saw the Pharisees and the scribes, do you remember what they were up to? That they were saying that this man is doing all these miracles. He's doing it by the power of Beelzebub. He's possessed by a demon. And we ended that section with the Pharisees and the scribes saying they sought to destroy him. Here in chapter 7, it says the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem and they had made a really, really long journey to get to Jesus. And if you know this account, or if you know anything about where we are uh, in this book of Mark, you know that this, they're not coming to Jesus to submit their lives to Him. But it's a little tricky. I think it's a little tricky when we look at these Pharisees and when we look at these scribes because I think it's easier when we see the crowds and we see that they're in it for themselves, but when we look at the Pharisees and the scribes, I think we too quickly dismiss them because the reality of the Pharisees and scribes is that what they are desiring, they're desiring to be godly. They're desiring to be good. But they're getting it wrong. Look at verse 7. Jesus is quoting Isaiah here talking about them. And he says, in vain do they worship me. Teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. And what we see when we look at the Pharisees is they had this complex form of godliness, of trying to be in the, the God crowd, as I said earlier. 
But what Jesus tells us is that it was in vain. They were focusing on the wrong thing. Many years ago, uh, I have a friend who owns a store. He was buying it from an older gentleman. And uh, in the process of him buying this store, I would hang out with this guy. And he knew when he found out I was a pastor, he just got real excited. He just kind of lit up. And so he started this conversation with me, which I was very intrigued in. I try to be respectful to the people that are older than me. And he said, hey, listen, do you know what the problem is with the youth of these days? And I should have known, oh, this is not going to a good place. But I'm like, no, what? Like, I had ideas. And so he said that the problem with the youth in our day and age, and the thing that would get them back on track, if they would cut out all this mixed bathing. Now, some of you might know what that means. I had no idea what that meant. And I was thinking like, man, is there something going on that, I mean, you know, my mind was going, you know, man, that does sound bad. (laughs) And as he began to talk, what I realized he was talking about was swimming in the same pool, males and females swimming in the same pool, that that was mixed bathing. Like, Oh, okay. All right. He was dead serious. (laughs) And as he was talking, what was happening is what what he thought was going on is is that by actually swimming together, males and females, that, that what was going on was that it actually was defiling the youth of our day and age. That something was going on in that that was literally making them unholy. And you could tell by the way that he was speaking, I was not the first person he had had this conversation with, that this was, this was his thing. In fact, the way that my friend reacted as he rolled his eyes, as he was saying, do you know what the problem with the youth are these days? I should have picked up that, okay, here comes the speech. Could you imagine if this man was at the town hall pool? I've been joking, we kind of had an SNBC moment last night at the pool, and he would have not liked that. But you see, in his thinking, in his observation, he had it all figured out. And as we look at this text, we see a group of people, the Pharisees and the scribes, and in much the same way, they feel like they've got it all figured out. Look at verses 1 through 5. Look at what happens here. The Pharisees, they come a long way and they get to Jesus. And in verse 2, and they had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands. That is unwashed. And in verse 5, the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat their bread with unpure hands? And some of you this morning may be saying, look, that's good practice. If you've learned anything in COVID, washing your hands is a good thing. There, what's not going on here, what is not going on in this text, are these Pharisees and scribes are talking about good hygiene. It's not what's going on. If that's what you're thinking, you'll miss the boat. What they are saying is that literally, by not ceremonially washing before you eat, that it was defiling the person that was eating. 
This is a much, much bigger issue. This is a lot like, remember when the Pharisees uh, earlier in Mark were after Jesus because some of His disciples were going through and they were plucking grain on the Sabbath and they were eating it and it much in the same way they were looking at these laws and these regulations and they're saying, oh, you, these people, your disciples are unclean and you as their teacher are a false teacher because you're leading them astray if they're not doing these things that would keep them from becoming unclean. And you may ask yourself the question, where in the world are they getting this? Where in the world are they getting this? I mean, is it in the Bible? Is there a law in the Old Testament? Is there a a verse in Leviticus that says, thou shalt wash thy hands before thou eatest? No. There, There is a reference to priest as they're going into the temple and offering sacrifices to do some ceremonial washings, but we don't see anything in the Old Testament of where they would get this. And so the question you have to ask yourself is, were they just making it up? Notice, if you are a careful reader of the Bible, I'm hoping that you were picking up on a phrase. Let me read verses 3 through 5, and I want you to hear a phrase that is repeated. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing, here's the phrase, the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves, and there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and copper pots. The Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to, did they say the law? No, they did not say the law. They said the tradition of the elders. And so this phrase is important to understand this context. What in the world are these scribes and Pharisees talking about? What is the tradition of the elders? And what was going on is that for many years there was this thought among the Pharisees that at Sinai when the law was given to Moses that there were two laws that were given. There was one law that became the written law, what we get in the, in the Pentateuch and what we get in the Torah, the written law. But there was also this thought that there was this oral tradition that God gave Moses that Moses had passed down throughout the ages and what was happening is that this was passed down and this is what we see that these scribes and Pharisees are talking about of what this, this tradition of the elders, it would have been this oral law and it got bigger and bigger and bigger. And then when we get to the third century after Christ's death, this was actually written down and you can actually read some of it in what's called the Mishnah. And if you were with us as we were talking um, about the last time that the scribes and Pharisees attacked Jesus about following the law, then we read several things from the Mishnah about the Sabbath. Do you remember we talked about that there was in the Mishnah, that what they said is there was a certain amount of steps that you could walk before it was considered work on the Sabbath. That there were certain kinds of knots that you could untie. If you had to use two hands, that was work. One hand, it wasn't work. This was the oral law that had been passed down. And the goal of this was to kind of fence in or to help people keep the law. Help people keep things like the Sabbath. 
And if you were to go to the Mishnah, you would see that there are many, 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 many pages and words written about how to cleanse your utensils, how to cleanse your pots, and how to cleanse your hands, and how to eat. And so when we see here in verse uh, 4 about the pots and the cups and the pitchers, Mark is referring us to this oral tradition. And the problem had become that these traditions became how you kept the law, and if you started violating these traditions, then you were unclean. And here's something that I want to just ask you this morning. As you're in here this morning, as you are desiring to follow the Lord, as you're desiring to to keep His commandments, as you're desiring maybe to, to be a better Christian, is there something inside of you that says, man, it sure would be nice if we lived according to that Mishnah? They kind of spelled it all out for us. Man, I really would like it if I could knew just how to put all my effort and how to work into something. You see, the problem, the problem, the traditions in and of themselves aren't bad. But the problem is the traditions are not what make us clean. They don't make us clean. And violating the traditions also don't make us unclean. And so following some form of tradition like not mixed bathing or washing your hands before you eat doesn't make you clean or unclean in the sight of God. So the problem is that these traditions can get us off course. When I was at Crossroads, there were many people that attended Crossroads that had I attended a prominent high school and Bible school in our area. And they would often tell me stories of rules, regulations, and traditions and how they were handled at this prominent school. And some of Casey and my uh, good friends uh, would often tell us that they would have to sneak to go to the movie theater because the RA, the person who was in charge of their dorm, was sitting out in a lawn chair with a pad and paper at the movie theater writing down names of students who were going into the movies. The problem is not the idea that we should think about what we're putting into our head, right? That is a good thing. We would all say it's a good thing to think through what we're watching, what we're putting into our head, the things that we're indulging in. The problem is that this became the main thing. That somehow, by going to an R-rated movie, that you were made unclean. A real problem came along when the Passion of the Christ was rated R. That just threw the world in a tizzy. What do we do? Notice what Jesus says in verse 8 and 9. He says, Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. Think about that rebuke. 
you are an expert at setting aside the commandments of God in order to keep your tradition. Notice, as Jesus is talking here, notice what he does. In verse 5, as the Pharisees are ending their argument of, of why do you not walk according to the tradition of the elders, notice what he does. What does he say? You've got the tradition of the elders. He says, in Isaiah, he goes to Scripture. Notice in verse 10, again, as he is talking about that they are, they are neglecting the commandment of God in order to keep their tradition, he said, for Moses said. And what Jesus was doing was Jesus was pointing to the real thing. Jesus was pointing to the commandment of God. Jesus was pointing to the tradition of of Scripture, And what I want to ask you this morning, because I want to be careful as I'm talking about tradition and where we're going in a minute, I want to be careful because I want to ask you the question, does the New Testament, does Jesus ask us to follow commandments? Easy. What is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus doesn't say there are no more commandments. Do you remember in the book of Matthew when Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount? You have heard it said, which I think is a reference to this oral tradition, you have heard it said, you should not murder, that was also a commandment. I say to you, Jesus kind of defines and redefines what that commandment is, that anyone in his heart, that Jesus goes after the heart. He uses the commandments to go in and to go after the heart. And so what's the difference? The traditions that these men were bringing were from men. The true commandments that we are to look at are from God. Those who love Christ, who truly love God, who want to have a relationship with Him, aren't looking at these commandments as these burdensome ways to find your way to God, but the commandments become a way of working out what is in you. That the heart and the desire of the heart is to be more like Him. And so we desire those things. But that's not where these Pharisees are. Look at the example that Jesus uses. I love this. Verse 10. For Moses said, so notice, uh, kids, teenagers, you need to hear this. My kids really need to hear this this morning. Teasing. Honor your father and your mother. He who speaks evil of his father and mother shall be put to death. Sounds like a serious commandment. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I have that would help, help you is Corban, that is to say given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. Now, what was going on is this, is that uh, if, if you were a, a good Jew, 
you could say, all that I have, all the finances that I have are dedicated to the Lord. And this became a way of being holy without having to put your money literally where your mouth was. So that if your parents were in need and needed something, instead of you honoring your father and mother and giving them the money that they needed, you said, oh, nope, it's dedicated to God, I'm sorry. And so what Jesus was pointing out was that things had gotten so weird and kind of so bad that the Pharisees had had created such structures that you were able to go around the law. That you didn't have to follow the law. And think about this. That these traditions then began to blow people off course. Focus was off the main thing. And life became dominated Dominated by secondary issues. You see, the real problem with these Pharisees, Jesus gives us in verse 6. He said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. They are hypocrites. That's the real problem. These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. And I want to ask you this morning, what is a hypocrite? Because I think we often get this wrong. Now, I love it when people say to me, you know, one of the reasons I don't go to church is because they're, they're all hypocrites. And I'm like, yep, that's true. We are. And so are you. So you should feel welcome. But sometimes, sometimes I, I think we don't understand what the meaning of hypocrite is. And so sometimes there's this false idea that being a hypocrite means is if I if I don't want to pray, if I don't want to pray, but I do pray, then I'm being a hypocrite. And I call that like the struggle of Christian life. Right? That's not being a hypocrite. That's struggling in your Christian walk. What, is a, what a hypocrite is, what a hypocrite is, and what Jesus is defining is a hypocrite, is someone who says that they love God, but they really don't. You see, what Jesus was saying a hypocrite is, is he's saying these people, these Pharisees, they don't really love God. They're not really following after God. What they're following after is their own self-interest. And they are using the things of God to prop themselves up. And when we think of it in these terms, no wonder they love these traditions. Because you can use the traditions, you can use things in Christianese to make yourself look better. Wasn't that what Mr. Smith was doing? Let me ask you, what's easier? What's easier? If you truly want to make yourself look like a good Christian, what's easier? To love your enemy or to not watch an R-rated movie? Let's be honest. We would much rather have a moral code to follow than to have to follow the commandment that as a Christian we should desire to love our enemy. What's easier? To bless those who persecute you? Or to not go to the swimming pool if the opposite sex is in it? What's easier? To forgive someone 70 times 7? Or don't drink, smoke, or chew, or date women who do. Sorry, I had to throw that one in there. 
But in all seriousness, what's easier? And if the goal of your life is to show the world that you're a good Christian, isn't it much easier to stand on these moral traditions to show and to prove that I'm a good Christian, but at the root of that is this sickness that you are on the throne of your life. God's not there. You're there. Am I saying that loving your enemy, blessing those who persecute you, and forgiving those who have wronged you is easy? No. <laughs> no. But what I'm saying is that there, there, you find the real Christian walk. And the problem is that we all have some Pharisee in us. Don't we? We all have some Pharisee in us. We all have these ideas that, you know, I'm a, you know, I think I'm a little bit better Christian than so-and-so because I've kept up with my Bible reading plan at Signal Mountain Bible Church. We all want to be made much of. It's a desire that we have. We want people to look at us, us, especially people within our circle, and think that we're a good member of our circle. Just the other day, somebody was asking me about running, and I felt like a, a running hypocrite because I have not been running a lot recently. Everything that's in me wanted to lie and said, yeah, I'm running a ton and really fast. Don't we want the world to look at us as a good Christian? You see, one of the things that's going on in this text that's very subtle that Mark is doing that we oftentimes don't see, but when we, when we look at Mark and when we begin to see that Mark does these subtle things in his writing, is that one of the things that we're going to see is the next two accounts that we have uh, in this book is, is one is the... Syrophoenician woman, she's a Gentile. And then there's a, a man that is deaf and spoke with difficulty, it says in verse 32. Both of these are Gentiles. And this is just another example. Mark subtly is taking us to this whole idea that the gospel is going to the Gentiles. And he lays it out in verse 13 that Jesus is saying this. The gospel is going to the Gentiles. And we've had some hints of this in the past of the, the, the demoniac. Remember, he was a Gentile and Jesus left him there. Remember we had that conversation about he wanted to get in the boat and go with Jesus? And Jesus said, no, stay here and be my witness. And so I think one of the questions that's supposed to be in the back of our mind is that those who are unbelievers, the Gentiles, how do you convert them? And isn't it interesting that the person that was giving Mark his, his stuff was Peter? And did Peter ever face this idea of what happens when a Gentile is converted? Do you lay on them the law, the, the, the circumcision and all these things? And so I want to ask us, I think there's some subtle hints of this in our text. When the world looks at your life, as you proclaim to be a Christian, will the world see somebody who loves Christ and is following Him and whose heart is desiring a relationship with the God of the universe and is communion, in communion with the God of the universe or will it see a very principled person living a neat lifestyle? 
you know, we have all, we have all adhere to some man-made structures that help us in our Christian walk. And what I want you to hear me say is that many of those things are good things. I want to be clear, that is just not the thing. It may be a great principle for you to never watch an R-rated movie. It may be a great principle for you to do some of these things, but if that's the main thing, you're missing the boat. How exhausting, how exhausting is that rat wheel? When I was in seminary, all of the, um, it was interesting because I, uh, many of you know that I went to seminary, I've used this phrasing before, uh, that when I went to seminary, I, God really got a hold of my life in college, I felt called to the ministry, went to seminary, and I thought that seminary was going to be like a VBS on steroids. We're going to sing, we're going to dance, we're going to learn little stories. And I get there, and I've got long hair, long beard, I don't, you know, ratty t-shirts, shorts that have holes in them, and tevas. And the very first day that I went into where I was eating, I realized I didn't fit in. And as I began to observe the pecking order in seminary, because there is a pecking order, you would have all the, the well-known, the, the president and all the, the, the really good professors would be walking down the hall, and there were these seminary boys walking right behind them with their suits and their bow ties, hair all in the right place. And those aren't bad things. But what I know, because I got close to some of those guys, or I saw some of those guys spin out in ministry, is that the problem becomes, the problem became, is if the goal was to advance your your clout in the seminary world, or if the goal was to advance that, you know, I'm the next this, or I'm the next that in the Bible study world, then that is a tiring rat wheel to be on, and at some point in His mercy, God is going to put a stick in that wheel and you're going to fall flat on your face. See, the world, the world doesn't need more good Christians. The world needs more people who are in love with Jesus and who are following Christ And the secret that we need to let the world in on is we mess up sometimes. And the world needs to see that we follow a God that loves us and who has bought us, who has brought us through His Son into a relationship with Him. And that the more that we commune with Him, the deeper our relationship gets with Him, the more we become like Him. Pray that we become a people. That when the world looks at us, they see a people who are loving Christ, who are loved by Him, and who are making them known over a good Christian man or woman. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are asking for a work this morning that only You can do. 
Only you can do. You know our hearts. God, my prayer this morning is that if if there's been a confrontation like there has been in my life this week, that God, that as some here may have, this rebuke may come really close to them, that God, that you would just reach in and let them know how loved they are. And that the goal is not to lean on these man-made structures, but to lean into your arms. God, help us to be a people at Single Mountain Bible Church who love you above all else. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to do it wrong. Help us to be a people like your servant David who is so flawed, who are recognized as a people after your own heart. God, only you can fan that flame of love within us. And God, I pray that you would would do that this morning. This is only possible through your son Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.